1: So then, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's army. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now. And I have oxen, asses, flocks, men servants, and maid servants. And I have sent to tell my lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, "We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men with him." Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies, thinking, if Esau comes to the one company and destroys it. Then the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who didst say to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and slay us all, the mothers with the children. But thou didst say, I will do you good, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he lodged there that night, and took from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred she-goats, and twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes, and twenty rams, thirty milch camels, and their colts. 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 he-asses. And he delivered, in, he delivered into the hand of his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on before me, and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the foremost, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these before you? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him, and he himself lodged that night in the camp. The Same night he arose and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hull of his thigh and Jacob's thigh was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day's breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no more be called Jacob but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jake, Jacob asked him, "Tell me, I pray, your name." But he said, "Why is it that you ask my name?" And then, and there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, "For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved." The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is upon the hollow of the thigh. Because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh on the sinew of the hip. So the the whole chapter is leading towards this moment where Jacob is wrestling with God. And as with every other chapter in Genesis, this is an icon of our own life. And we must be able to see it this way. If we contend ourselves in looking at this in the literal sense, we're going to go through the literal sense, but if we only look at the literal sense as though this is a story that applied to Jacob long, long time ago and has nothing to do with us, we would be missing on the on the graces and the blessings that God wishes to give us through Scripture. I often said this to you. Scripture isn't So much a book that we read as a mirror in which we see ourselves and God. That's what scripture is. The power of scripture is to help us enter into this dialogue with God. At the end of the dialogue, we get to know God a little bit more and we get to know ourselves a little bit more. That is why knowledge of Scripture is inscribed within the compass of morality. There is no separation between theology and morality within the human heart. One leads to the other. One feeds into the other. An upright life, a moral life, allows us to understand theology with greater clarity. And a clearer understanding of theology will lead us to exercise virtue in ways we have not done before. This is why we study Scripture. And for us to understand that the ultimate meaning of scripture is found in the history of the church. That the church is the realization of scripture in time. That the church is scripture made into history. That this, the word of God in the Bible is realized in the life of the church. And when we are Devoted to the Catholic Church, when we love the Church and care about the Church over and above anything else in this world, Scripture tends to clarify itself. We start to have a mind of Scripture. Because at the end of the day, there is only one teacher of Scripture, and that is the Catholic Church. Apart from the Church, no one teaches Scripture. All the graces that flow into the world flow into the world through the Catholic Church to whomever. Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, Atheists, all of them receive graces from God through the Catholic Church. And the Church is the teacher of Scripture. Verse 1 and 2, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's army. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. This is related to the previous chapter. As I've told you often, these divisions in, chapter and in chapters and verses is artificial somewhat. Um, someone in the, I don't remember who exactly, but in the Middle Ages, I think in around the 12th century, 11th century, I don't remember exactly, so don't quote me on this one. Somebody one day sat down and thought, in order for us to better quote from Scripture, it would be better if we divided it in chapters and verses. Right? But Scripture was never written with chapters and verses in mind. It was just written as just one scroll. The whole book of Genesis is just one scroll. Therefore, these divisions that we see today are artificial, and hence we have to always be careful to remind ourselves of the context in which one chapter occurs. It is the context of the prior chapter. In the prior chapter, Laban had raced to reach Jacob and essentially contend with him. But in a dream, God came to him and said, You shall not speak to Jacob, for good or for ill. And after this whole event took place, God showed Jacob in a vision the heavenly army that was standing at the ready To fight for him. After, not before. It's a confirmation of what he had gone through. And as I told you, oftentimes God will speak to us after, not before. Because this is the best way in which he can allow our faith to grow. Which is what he's really after. So, this strengthens Jacob... But note how fickle is the human heart. He just saw angels. He saw the army of angels arrayed ready for battle to help him. And you'd think this would turn him into Superman. I mean, he saw the angels. And what happens? He's now scared, silly, from his brother. What does that suggest to us? What does that teaches us? What is the lesson here for all of us? Trust, yeah. But what is it that we are all tempted to do at various times in our lives? Rely on ourselves. Rely on ourselves. What else? We ask God for what? Signs. Signs show us, right? We think if God, you know, if God or Our Lady or Saint were to just appear to us right now and tell us what to do. Right? So, let's just throw in an example. Suppose a saint, let's say St. Anthony of the Desert, were to appear right now, and look Andrew in the, in the eyes, We're sitting way in the back, and look at him and says, Andrew, you're going to become the patriarch of Constantinople. And then he would disappear. Do you see Andrew standing up and walking right now to Constantinople? In Turkey? Because, it, what do you think would happen I'm not picking on Andrew, I'm just picking because I like him. But the, you know, if he were if, if if God were to appear to me and say something like this, or or let's say pick somebody else, you know, Moses appears and says, okay, you're gonna to go to the president of the United States and tell him abortion is wrong, stop right now. Would you stop would you start walking? What happens after the appearance, the apparition is gone? Doubt. Did I really see Moses? Was this Moses? And what would Moses appear to me? Now, had Moses appeared to me and said, here are the winning numbers for the next lottery. (laughs) Now, that might be a wholly different affair. But what is Genesis teaches us about lottery? God never told any of them this is how you win the lottery. Did he? Do you understand? It is far better for us that God instills in our hearts virtues, teaches us to grow in virtues than it would be if we saw an apparition of a saint. Because our eyes can deceive us and our heart is fickle. But when God strengthens our heart in virtue, that is a treasure of that we can take with us to heaven. Do you understand? However, God will not strengthen us in virtue, usually, unless we ask Him for it. He is a good Father. And we cannot ask Him for it unless we know what virtues are. Right? Okay. So, who can name the three theological virtues? Raise your hand. Okay. The three theological virtues are faith, hope, and why do we call them theological? Because they come to us directly through divine intervention. We don't have them when we are born. Yeah? When do we receive these virtues? When are they instilled in our heart? At time of baptism. When we are baptized, we receive these three theological virtues of faith, hope and charity. Faith, hope and charity, and the greatest of the three is caritas, love. These are the three theological virtues. What are the four cardinal virtues? We call them cardinal because they're principal, but they belong to the natural order. These all human beings receive. They are written, inscribed in our heart when we are conceived. They are part of our soul. And what are the four cardinal virtues of the natural order? Okay. Justice. Actually, prudence is the first. Temperance. Justice. And fortitude. Prudence. Temperance justice, and fortitude. Prudence is the virtue that allows us to act rightly. To know how to act rightly. That's what prudence is. So, prudence is the virtue that acts on the will. Teaches the will to act rightly. The right way. Now that the will knows what to do, you got to Get the donkey to do it. Right? And the donkey usually doesn't like to do it. So then. Right? The second, that you, the second thing you're gonna need is justice. Right? So let me let me back up. Justice is is justice is the virtue that acts on our intellect and teaches us to know what to do right. Prudence teaches us how we do it right. Okay? So, I got, it, I got messed up a little bit. Justice is to know what to do right. How to c- conduct ourselves the right way. Prudence, tell us how. So, justice is what are we supposed to do that is right. Prudence, how am I going to do it? Now that I know what, how. Okay. Now Both, the first act on the intellect, the second act on the will. And the two other ones, the temperance, Temperance act on what? The passions. Temperance acts on our passion and teaches our passion to get in line with justice so we could act ju- justly. Hmm? That's what temperance does. It tempers our passions so that they can actually act justly. And fortitude is the virtue of perseverance. It allows us to persevere in doing the right thing. You understand how the four work together? It's like a puzzle. The first one, justice. What are you supposed to do? The second one, prudence. How are you going to do it? The third one, temperance. Get your passions in order so they don't get in the way. And the fourth one, fortitude, helps you persevere. They're called the four cardinal virtues. And you have a whole bunch of other ones that fall underneath these. So for instance, the virtue of piety falls under prudence. It can also fall under justice. Piety is this virtue that teaches us to give God what is due to God. That's the virtue of piety. Then there is charity. There's so many other ones. But if you don't know these virtues, if you don't know what you're making, what you're make what you're made up, how are you gonna ask God for something? Yeah? So you need to know yourself. You need to know those areas of weaknesses within you where you need help. So you can go to God and say, I need help. I am not temperate. If I start watching a movie, I'll watch a movie all the way till four in the morning, even if I have to get up at six. That is a vice. Right? If I hear somebody talking about somebody else, I have to listen. And I have to get part of the conversation. That's curiosity. It's a vice. Alright? And on and on, if you can't express yourself in terms of these virtues and vices, then you don't have a way to talk about those areas of your life where you need help. Therefore, you can ask for it. Always remember the prayer of St. Augustine. Lord, let me know myself that I may know Thee. Let me know myself that I may know Thee. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. And he gives an instruction about how he's going to be dealing with his brother. And so he's going to send gifts to his brother. Now, Jacob, ever a man of action, take precautionary measures. So first he gathers intelligence. What am I dealing with? He sends scouts out, comes back and says, your brother is coming to meet you 400 men. 400 men is essentially the size of a... um, um, of a of, a, of, a, of a, it's a, it's a essentially um, a military um, division size of military division. So this has military undertone. Is he coming with 400 men to offer me escort, or is he coming with 400 men to offer my belongings escort away from me? Is he coming after me? Or is he going to help me? He doesn't know. And so he's greatly afraid. Of how his brother is going to react. So, notice what he does. He gathers intelligence. He essentially is thinking about what he's going to do. He comes up with a plan. And if you notice, the plan does not include battle. He's not a violent man. He's not going to go and attack his brother. And then he does a really important thing a prayer. And listen to his prayer. This is worth meditating on because it's a model of prayer. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. So first, he recognizes God for who he is. He gives attribute to God and he recognizes God as the true God. So in our case, when we start our prayer, who do we pray to? Even if you have a petition, even if you have a, something that is sitting heavy on your heart, who do you pray to? What is God? What does God mean? Pardon? Yeah, but but who do you? Okay, who are you praying to? Okay, are you praying to God the Father? Are you praying to God the Son? Or God the Holy Spirit? Who are you praying to? Okay, you're going to pray to the Holy Trinity. How do you pray to the Holy Trinity? How do you do that? Pardon? Very good. The Son. But what else? What What do you do next? See, the virtue of piety, as I stated earlier, is this virtue that instructs us to give God what is His due. And what do we owe God? Glory, right, exactly. We must give God that which is His due, that is His glory. So any prayer must start with giving God glory before all else. And thankfully, within the Catholic Church, we have a beautiful prayer that expresses this perfectly. Glory to God in the highest. If you haven't memorized that prayer, memorize it. It's a perfect Trinitarian prayer. It addresses God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in a Trinitarian relationship and gives them the glory. So when you pray, start by saying the glory and say it slowly and focus. And then once you've done that, give due regard to God the Father by saying the Our Father. And when you've done that, then thank, give thanksgiving to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in your own words. Take the time to say thank you. Before you ask, not after. Before. Imitating our Lord Himself, who when He raised Lazarus, thanked God before He raised Lazarus. Not after. Okay? That is putting yourself in the proper attitude of a creature praying before the Creator. Then you can present your petition. Now that you said you gave glory to God, now that you thank God for all the things He has given you, He's done for you, continues to do them, now that you have brought all this to mind, you're in the right frame of mind to present your petition. Then you present your petition. And here's the nub. When you're going to present your petition, if you don't know your heart, how do you know what you're asking for? Dear Lord, please give me a Lamborghini. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a Lamborghini, is there? Well, you might argue that a Ferrari may be nicer, right? But there's nothing wrong with it. But you're laughing, and you know exactly why, don't you? So a Lamborghini is something that is really easy To figure out, why am I praying for a Lamborghini, right? Okay, let's take a different case. Please, Lord, help me find a job. Doesn't that seem straightforward? Doesn't it? Yeah. Until you consider, perhaps, that the one who's asking this prayer is a pregnant woman. Now, it's a little bit more complicated, isn't it? Is it really God's will for a mother to go work and put her kid in a daycare? Is she asking this prayer because... She's desperate for the money? Or she's asking this prayer because she really likes to work and not deal with a kid? Hmm? How would you know? I don't have a straight answer. There is not one universal answer for these situations. But unless you know what you're asking for, why would God even listen to you? You understand? Okay, a sick child. Lord, please, please heal my kid. Why? Why are you asking this? Why are you asking for the healing of your kid? Is it because you know it's in the best interest of the child to be healed? Or is it because you simply cannot bear to let go of him? Are you being egotistic? are you really caring about the child? Why should God listen to you? Do you understand? What if he healed the kid and then 30 years later, the kid committed a mortal sin and died and went to hell? What kind of God is that? Who would do such a thing. You see, we have so many assumptions in the back of our mind. We are part of the generation of entitlement. We're entitled to everything, under the sun and in heaven. So we don't know who we are. We don't know what we're asking for. We don't know. But we assume we do. We know better than God. Yeah? And on and on the list goes. When we're asking for something, why are we asking for it? Ask yourself this question. Purify your intention before God. The pure of heart shall see God. When Jesus said that, He didn't simply mean pure as in people who don't deal with sex. That's not what pure means. Pure means someone who truly sees the intentions as they are. Someone who is detached from the intentions and attached completely to God. The pure of heart shall see God. The purer your heart is, the stronger and more authentic your prayer will be. Yeah? So he gave thanks to God, and then he reminds God of the covenant. That is the anchor of his prayer. O Lord, who didst say to me, return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. Jacob is not standing before God and reminding God of all the wonderful things he, Jacob, did. Okay, Lord, you can't do this to me. I've been faithful to you. I've been good. I went to Mass every Sunday. I give food to the poor. I did. He doesn't start with a laundry list of all the wonderful things he did. No, 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 no. He reminds God of the covenant. That is the assurance of our faith. The covenant. Jesus, you signed this with your blood. You said on the cross, if you are faithful to me, I will take you to heaven. I will make this happen to you and your children. And so, Lord, I call upon the cross. By the power of the cross, grant my prayer. You pray with the power of the cross. If your intentions are pure, you thought you took time to purify your intentions. You really thought hard about, am I asking this for me, for greed, for pride, because I'm hurt, or am I really, truly, genuinely asking it because I am absolutely convinced that it is a good. And when I am convinced that it's a good, then I'll ask for it, but I still will accept the fact that God may not grant me the prayer. Because I'm not God, I don't know what is the best thing in the grand scheme of things. Right? But at least I do my part, and He's doing His part. That's how we pray. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. I am not worthy. How many of us say this in our prayer when we're entreating God for something? I am not worthy, and we mean it. Or do we simply go to God and say, well, you know, I'm praying for this, you should give it to me. Or we bargain, yeah. I'll do this, yeah. I'll be good if you do this. for me. And then we wonder, why is God, God listening to me? Well, if you said something worth listening to, He would. We treat God like He's Santa. And we're Calvin. Here's my 30 pages list of all the things I want. And please give it to me yesterday. Thank you. And when it doesn't happen, we get upset with God. How come God's not listening to me? It doesn't work this way doesn't work this way. I'm not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. So, 14 years he spent in the service of of Laban after being tricked. And then he spent another 6 years in his service. 20 years total in which he toiled in the service of Laban. Not a pretty life for 20 years. And how does he seize it? What does he call this 20 years of exile, of toiling in foreign land, not being completely sure he's going to be able to survive, not being sure to be able to leave the country on his own, having married a woman he didn't love in the first place? How does he call all of this? God, steadfast love. So stop right there. Here's Jacob, here's you. Here's Jacob, who is not who has no access to the sacraments of the church. Here is you. What's the difference between you and Moses? You and Abraham? What is the difference? Do you know what the difference is? No, no. Not the things. You, you, you. What's the difference between you and the greatest of the Old Testament? What is the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. The difference is that if there was an angel standing here, an angel, and there was Moses and there was you. The angel would accept that Moses worship him. He would not accept that you worship him. And you know why? Because you're his equal. You. You are equal to angels in dignity. Do you understand that? Moses is not. You are. Jacob is not. You are. Abraham is not. You are. John the Baptist, when he lived, was not. You are. Why? Because of the Eucharist. Because of the Eucharist. Your soul is being divinized in ways that people of the Old Testament could not even begin to imagine. And that makes you the equal of angels. You want to know where that is? Go read the book of Revelation. St. John twice fell at the feet of an angel to worship him. And the angel told him, you must not do that. We are both servants of the Lamb. The angel would not accept his worship. But he did accept the worship of the people of the Old Testament. Without a problem. And here we are. Here is somebody who did not have access to any of those graces. And we're looking at his life. And we, we, we then, it reflects on ours. And what do we feel? How many of you are thinking... Jacob, old boy, I did better than you. I'm way ahead. You know what the sad truth is? You should be way ahead. Why aren't you? Was his life any easier than yours? Did you have to work as a slave for 20 years in the service of an unjust man? As an illegal immigrant? Not knowing if you're going to survive the following day? No. That's a good point. Is the harder lifestyle easier for the spiritual life? St. Thomas Aquinas teaches us that poverty of itself does nothing to the man. In fact, poverty can make a man far worse than, um, uh, than uh, bounty. The, it isn't that life or the conditions of life will mold you one way or the other. Your response is primordial. How you respond is essential. That's the key. Now, take two people. One who responds to God's grace. Both of them are responding to God's grace. Put one in conditions where he has fewer temptations to be attached to things. Put the other in conditions where he has far greater occasions to be attached to things. Then the first one will get ahead. Yes. There I agree with you. Poverty would be a great, great uh, richness in that case. And that's what St. Francis called her, lady poverty. He spoke of poverty as lady poverty, and he sang the beauty of lady poverty. But this is for souls who are already on the way. But for souls who are not, poverty will make things a lot worse. So we have to be careful with that. Conditions on themselves are not sufficient. It's our response to God right now, today, how are we responding to God today, in the events of today? That is the key question. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and slay us all, the mothers with the children. Notice his prayer is direct. Direct and to the point. Deliver me from the hand of, uh, of my brother Esau, for I fear him. Here's why I want you to deliver me, because I fear him. I'm afraid He will come and do these things. Okay? Our prayer must be likewise. Direct. When you petition God for something, if you're spending 15 minutes, all right. if you're spending 15 minutes, you're talking too much. Know what you want to ask for, and ask for it directly. And then let it be. And then, He adds again, But thou didst say, I will do you good and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So twice before his petition and after his petition, he anchors himself on the word of the Lord. You said you're going to do this. Because you said it, I ask for it. And I'm asking for it because you said it. You see? Your prayer likewise must be anchored on the work of Jesus Christ. And on the work of the church. Don't ever think that God will answer your prayer if it is against the will of the Catholic Church. It will never happen. Never. So first, know that your prayer is consonant with the will of the Church. Second, know that it is the best thing for God, not you, God. That it is for the glory of God. Then, present your petition directly, straight, with confidence, and then remind God again, by the, power, by the blood you shed on the cross, I call upon your name, O Lord. Hear my prayer. This teaches us to treat God the way we, he's supposed to be treated. We can't be um, treating God like he's our buddy. Or like he's a stranger. Or a fearful master we cannot even approach. Or We have to know who God is to treat him as he must be treated. The virtue of piety. So then he lodged there. I'm not going to go through the whole detail. I'll, I'll tell you one couple of things, though, that in his presentation, the generosity that Jacobs give in his gift—not the presentation, but in his gifts—is uh, not unknown. So, for instance, um, in the ninth century before Christ, the town of Hindanu paid to Assyrian king tukulti Nimurta II some silver, bread, beer. Ninth century before Christ, beer. 30 camels, 50 oxen, 30 donkeys. And this gift, the gift that Jacob is making, would be sufficient for Esau to get a good start on a herding operation if he had nothing, or to reward mercenaries in his employ who may have been anticipating booty. So he's giving enough, so either Esau can get going on his own operation, right, or if he has enough, to pay the mercenaries who were expecting booty so now notice how in his in the in the things that he's doing he's very it's these are very concrete steps done in such a way to address the need that is ahead of him furthermore the fact that he's sending them hoard, you know uh, hoard after hoard and sending them with his own servants mean that in case Isa decides to attack him, he would have allies in Esau's camp. So it's a very smart thing to do. After he prayed, he now relies on, he re, he, he's relying on human intelligence to do the work that needs to be done. So, therefore, the words of St. Augustine and the words of St. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola that I mentioned to you, pray as if everything depended on God, work as if everything depended on you. Those were the words of St. Augustine. And then St. Ignatius said, pray as if everything depended on you, and work as if everything depended on God. And both, both are true. And both reveal something in a relationship with God. Now, this, this um, approach of Jacob to Esau has bothered the fathers because of the promise that was given um, Rebekah when she inquired of the Lord and she was told that the first will bow down to the second. And yet here we see that Jacob is bowing down to Esau. How could that be? Is that a violation of that promise that God made? And St. Augustine addresses this point and he says, so how shall the elder be slave to the younger when the younger manifestly bows down to the elder? But the reason why these things were not fulfilled in the actual history of the two men is to make us understand that they were said of a future Jacob. The younger son received the first place and the elder son, the people of the Jews, lost the first place. See how Jacob had has filled the whole world, has taken possession of nations and kingdoms. So the intention of St. Augustine is to show us that this younger, meaning Christianity, superseded the older, meaning Judaism. And that's why it is important for us to be very careful in how we interpret Scripture. Certain verses cannot be interpreted literally. It requires the whole context of Scripture in the context of the history of the Church to make the right interpretation. Very good. Now... Let's turn to this mysterious assailant. Jacob has sent first the herds. Then he sent his family. And then finally, his, the larger group of people. Then he sent his own family, including the woman he loves, Rachel, and her son. Now he's all alone. Likewise, in your prayer, there is a part of your prayer where you send your cares away. From you. Then you send your family away from you. And even the people closest to you, you send away from you. That means physically you find a secluded place to pray, a quiet place. Go back home, look at your house, and if it so happens that in your house you have a royal place for your TV, but do not have a place to pray by yourself. You're living a life where you're trying to adore two gods. You understand me? And I don't care how how often you go to church, and I don't care how many times you say the rosary. If your TV has the real place in your house, but there isn't a spot for you to sit down and pray by yourself, you're adoring the wrong God. Am I being clear? Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, We had the TV. You It was pretty big. Six feet. And... uh, there was no, no spot for me to sit down and, and pray. And what do you expect? Jesus is going to say, welcome in the kingdom of uh, heaven. It doesn't matter what channel you have. Nice try. It does not matter. There is no Catholic channel in heaven. Hmm? Yeah. You need a spot. Doesn't have to be the biggest spot in your house. You got to have a spot where you have the Bible, Maybe a candle, yeah? A book of prayer. And a comfortable place where you can sit. And you can pray, and the light needs to be at hand. So when you start praying, and I don't mean now a prayer of petition, and I'm talking about just sitting in the presence of God. Opening scripture, and letting the Holy Spirit guide you in a reading. You don't stress yourself, even if you don't understand anything. Don't worry about it read the gospel start with the gospel of saint mark start reading the gospels and read a paragraph slowly slow down slow it slow it down so jesus walked and said to the disciples follow me and immediately got up and followed him just stop right there and imagine the scene put yourself in their shoes would you immediately get up and follow them follow him so you might say yeah i would and then right there the holy spirit to the prominent your garden angel might bring to your attention the fact that your mother asked you to do the dishes and you did not immediately get up and do the dishes. And then how would you expect, therefore, to be able to immediately get up and follow Jesus? And then you start thinking, okay, what does that mean to immediately get up and follow? What does that really mean? In my life, what does it immediately mean? And suddenly, you're praying. You're in conversation with God. And gently, the Holy Spirit shows you an aspect of yourself that you have not seen before. Then he might, you might um, get bored after five minutes of trying this prayer. Because it's tiresome. Trust me. You will get bored. You will get depressed. Because we're so habitually, uh, we're so starved for stimuli. We need things bombarding us. We're TV people. We're internet people. We're the MySpace people. We're, right? And here we are sitting in prayer and there's nothing feeding us. Oh, boy. So our minds start wandering here and over there and all over the place. And we get depressed. I mean physically depressed. And then God might remind us, hmm, let's see. How long did you spend on your hair this morning? Combing your hair? spent 15 minutes on your hair? Preparing your hair? Or getting yourself ready? You looked at yourself in the mirror for all this time. You can't sit down here for 10 minutes and just with me in the face? And you want to be in heaven with me? Yes, you can. But it's different. You see, at work you still have stimuli. But if you're at home, you turn off the light and you're trying to really... There's no stimuli anymore. So you're not feeding your senses. That's the hard part. That's when you're deprived. That's why it becomes a sacrifice. It's a true sacrifice because you're really cutting down on the usual feed me. Right? If you try that... Then you discover the real meaning of love. So, he sent everybody away and now he's all by himself. And then, a man came and wrestled with him all night long. A couple of things. Number one, that indicates that Jacob prayed all night long. Nope, that was not a metaphor. Now, we're starting to put prayer in its real context. Prayer is not this sort of, uh, uh, you know, angelic music in the background, uh, beautiful setting. It's not a romantic encounter. It's more like wrestling. God comes and wrestles with you. Notice, Jacob was not the one who wrestled with God. God came to him. That's key. We sit in prayer time waiting for god to come to us instead most of us assume that when we sit to pray god is there it's like god is always on right high broadband connection always on there will never be a case where it's not it's going to be off it's always on and then we get depressed, I mean, or, or, or upset or irritated. How come God is not answering me? Here I am making my effort and I, I get nothing. It's like there's nobody. No, it doesn't work this way. God wants to teach us about ourselves. And what better way to teach us about ourselves than to let us soak in ourselves for some time? To really see how we smell. Sit down and try to pray for an hour. Try that. Try that. Put the timer on. Turn off the light and try to sit for one hour to pray. And if you were to do that in this one hour, you'll learn more about yourself than if you were to go to a class of psychology for a whole semester. Nope. No rosary. No talking. You read the Bible. Open the Bible. Read for no more than three minutes. Turn off the light. And think about what you just read. Imagine you were there. Right? And see how far this will take you. It'll probably take you for five to ten minutes. After which, your brain is going to just wander. Because your passion is going to flare up and say, forget it. I'm out of here. I'm going to find something to do. So you'll find yourself, if you like cooking, you're cooking something. You're thinking about your following day. You're looking at your agenda. You are this, I uh, called my friends. If you catch yourself, stop, turn on the light again, read another passage of Scripture, try it again. See what happens to you. See how you flare, how you get irritated, how you don't want to do it. See how the language of heaven is alien in our heart. But if you do it consistently, if you do it with fidelity to God, as a way of saying, I love you, and I will be there even if you don't come to me. I will be there. I will sit and I will wait for you. Just as if you have someone who is sick and you go visit the hospital. And they may have Alzheimer's, they may not recognize you, but you're there for them. You're visiting them. It's the same way. I'm waiting for you, God. I'll wait for you. Because I love you. And that, St. John Vianney, tells us that that attracts God like, like a... An, um, This is the right expression he used. Like the the antenna would attract lightning. It's like you become a lightning rod for God. And He will come. He will visit you. And you will see it, not in your hour of prayer, in the way you're growing in virtues. In the way you're changing. In the way you're overcoming certain passions. And you don't know how it's happening, but it's happening. God is contending with you how, what does that mean? It means that God is the one wrestling with you. Why? Because you don't want to sit. You don't want to pray. You would rather be somewhere else. He doesn't let go of you. He wrestles with you. And if you are victorious at the end of the wrestling, what happens? Jacob was victorious. What does that mean? It means... Why well, was he victorious, by the way? How can he be victorious against God? Did he beat God? What's the victorious part? He did not give up. That's it. He did not give up. In the whole wrestling piece, he didn't change. It was hard work. It was tough. It was demanding. All night long. Why the night? Precisely because it indicates that our senses are obscured. That has to happen when we move to a quiet place. God will not come to you if you're sitting, watching TV, or listening to music. That's not when He speaks to you. God speaks to you in the quiet. Right? When the wind is at its quietest, then God speaks to you. But he, it's not a... Nice thing what it happens, because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of heaven. We are not made as we are today for heaven. We have to tame the old person in us. And we do it when we struggle, when we contend with God during these prayer times. When we struggle with Him. And if you really want to know what I'm talking about, and if you're daring, sit for three hours. At least try it. Try it for three hours. Now, you might be thinking, this is crazy. This is completely crazy talk. How am I supposed to sit for three hours? How many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings in the movies, in the, in the theaters? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have seen it at home, the extended edition? Raise your hands. All right. How long is the extended edition? Four and a half hours. Oh, yeah. It's way better than what's in the theaters. I know. I've seen it three times. Four and a half hours. And we sit through it without any problem. But to think about sitting three hours in prayer. Oh, God forbid. But we won't mind spending time in eternity praying. That'd be okay. But three hours? No way. Do you understand the dichotomy? Do you understand how we, are, we must be looking so funny from the angels and God's perspective? We wouldn't have spent time in prayer, but we're willing to be in heaven and adoring God. Actually, most of us really are not looking forward to it. We think it's really boring. You know, None of us is really looking forward to be spending time in heaven standing like this, like a statue, your head cocked left or right. Right? And then she's just enunciating glory bees for eternity. That doesn't sound really appealing now, does it? No. Pardon? No internet. No TV. No phone. No cell phone. Gasp. How am I able to do that? Do you you see how we are so disjointed and so disconnected in ourselves between what we think we want and the reality of our behavior here on earth. And thank God for God's mercy, because He knows how weak we are. And He doesn't hold us up to it. But if you're here in this Bible study group, if you're really called in your heart to understand Scripture, God is calling you to something far greater. That's why I'm telling this to you. God is expecting you to do something greater. So get on with it content with God wrestle with Him try the one hour deal see what happens to you don't be afraid take time take time for God see what He would do at the end of the wrestling here He gets a new name Israel but the beauty of this whole wrestle is that at the end what is Jacob wanting what is burning in his heart what is your name Right? Guy sees pretty girl. What's burning in his heart? What's your name? Do you understand the question now? Yeah. It isn't, uh, what's your name, Uh, please provide identification. It's what I just said. You see, there is a part of this dialogue that I I cannot explain to you just as I can't explain to you how a guy feels when he sees the woman of his life unless you've gone through it. Hmm? But this is far deeper because he's contending with God, he's wrestling with God, and at the end of the wrestling, Jacob does not want to let go. The relationship of love between him and God has deepened. And now he asks, what is your name? This whole paragraph, by the way, is exactly, in the original, 143 words. 143 words. Why is that significant? Because the sign of Israel was 144 words. 12 times 12. And there is one word missing. The name of God. What is your name? Meaning, I want to enter into greater intimacy with you. I really want to know who you are, God. And I don't want to ever let go. And then he asks for a blessing. And the answer is, Why should you ask for my name? Now this is a really deep question. Why should you ask for my name? How do you get to know the name of God? The cross. You don't get to know the name of God apart from the cross. You're suffering what teaches you the name of God in your life nothing else will and he asks for a blessing and instead of God revealing his name to Jacob what does God do God reveals Jacob's true name to Jacob so you ask God what is your name and God responds by telling you your true name what does that mean your true name represents who you are in God's eyes who you will be in eternity. Your destiny. you, your, your purpose in life. Why you're here. Your gifts. Your talents. The unique, the unique, irreplaceable person you are. That without you, the world would be a poorer place. In ways you can't even begin to imagine or understand. That is your name that's what is revealed to Jacob. He shall be called Israel. It didn't happen in 20 years of service. It didn't happen in, 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 his, um, in his daily activities. It happened in prayer when he contended with God. His name was revealed to him. You can completely change your life if you were to spend quiet time with God. And let him reveal to you your true name. And so the... God actually touches his thigh muscle and then Jacob now is limping. Why? Because God's intent is to remind Jacob it isn't by your strength that you've won. It is by your love that you've won. And even though you may be weaker physically after you prayed with me, you shall be far stronger because of my strength in you. As soon as you try to pray, as soon as you spend time in prayer, the devil will be on your case. You can't pray. You have to sleep. You get sick. What are you talking about praying an hour? This is, this is for saints. It's not for you. Are you crazy? People will laugh at you. Forget it. I'm made for you. Go watch football or something. Do some push-ups. He'll be on your case. You have to contend with God. God will allow that to happen to you. And so, the, the chapter ends with the fact that the Jews would not eat that thigh muscle. Right? What is important to understand is that the legal value in forbidding the consumption of the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, presumably the sciatic nerve, is found in its memori- memorializing of Jacob's Israel struggle at the Jabbok in that sense comparable to the institution of circumcision, making a significant Covenantal reaffirmation. So the fact that they abstained from eating this food was to reaffirm the covenant. right? Because everything that is happening is happening in the context of the covenant. So again, he came, he saw angels, and he was afraid from his brother. The vision of angels did not cure his fear. Then he prayed. A prayer of petition, which is how we all start to pray. Beginners, all of us, pray, prayer is a petition. Then he did the right thing, and then he separated himself from all his belongings, all the things, all the possessions, all the worldly things, and moved on to the advanced stage of prayer. The one where you spend time in mental prayer, in meditating on Scripture. And during this mental prayer, God came and visited him and moved him to the highest level of prayer. The prayer contemplation. Or you contemplate God without knowing how you contemplate God. And God reveals to you things without you knowing how He's revealing things to you. And at the end of this prayer, Jacob fell in love with God. And God revealed to him His real name. That's what He wants to give each and every one of us. If if we want. If we are willing to spend time in prayer. How many graces are left? in heaven for you today. And when you will die, will you have received all the graces that God wanted to give you? Or will some of those graces came to you, washed off, and were given to someone else? Think about that. Pray about that. Meditate on that. Lent is a great season to contend with God. God bless you. Questions? Yes? Yes? What are some exercises you can do to purify your intentions? Very good question. Um, The very first thing you need to do is pray with that intention in mind. Because until God reveals to you, reveals to you those areas where you need to purify yourself, well, you can't do anything, right? You're blindsided. So, therefore, part of your prayer should be an examination of conscience. Take the Ten Commandments and just go through them, or pick an examination of conscience—a Catholic examination of conscience—out of the, out of the, um, out of Google, or any. You can Google them, right? You can get an examination of conscience. Just follow it in your prayer. An examination of conscience is not a torture, right? With the help of my holy, with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, my guardian angel. What are those areas that I need to work on, right? Then, the next thing you do, uh, you you're married, right? Yes, you ask your. Husband, what are the top three things you would like me to change? God speaks to us through our spouses. And then he would do likewise. Because no one knows us better than our our spouse. So I've said that multiple times. I've said that uh, I hope that when I die, my wife could write on my tombstone, there was nothing I could complain about. If she can do that... I have it done. Right? So, the, very practical steps. Pray, examination of conscience, ask God to enlighten you, then talk to your husband. Because in a married life, in a married, I haven't talked about this, but in a marital life, God does not wish to do one apart from the other. So He kind of moves us in lock steps. He might move one ahead of the other, but he, His intent is for both of us to end up in heaven. Okay? So, it is through the, the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives... So the sacramental of marriage, sacrament of marriage, that it happens. What if both are blind? Well, we're all blind. It's not what if. We are blind. All right? That's a given. Right? We are blind because we're weak. We're blind because we can't see things clearly. We're not, we don't have the wisdom of God. So we have to pray. If you start to pray, God will work through your life. And He works through normal means. He'll give you a book. Read this. Oh. Oh. Okay. Uh, He'll get you to talk to your husband. If the two of you are not talking, they're going to be really hard. I'll tell you right now. Because he intends for you to go to heaven through him. And he intends for him to go to heaven through you. So the graces he wants to give him come from you. So if he can't listen to you, he's in trouble. You can't listen to him, you're in trouble. So God works through the couple. And you will see if both of you start praying separately, just separately, on your own, suddenly you'll find yourself making time for the couple every week to spend an hour in genuine conversation. And that's how things start to change. It's now, Go back to struggle. It's not easy. right? It's hard. It's hard work. You're coming into the marriage with your own baggage from your family. He comes into the marriage room with his own baggage from family. Some of the stuff are good, some are not. And that purification has to happen, but it doesn't happen without this communication. And the communication doesn't happen if you don't know what you're going to communicate about. And that's where God gets into the picture. You talk to Him. Think of it this way. Marriage is a triangle. Hmm? The man and the woman are at the base of the triangle. God is on top. If the man and the woman try to get close to each other, right? Directly, they'll crumble the triangle. But if both are moving up towards God, they're getting closer to each other. That's how it works. Okay? I could say a lot more about it, but I think the basics are, first, pray. Take time to pray. Take time to pray. Pray separately, then pray together. Then, in your prayer, do an examination of conscience. Then, find books. The, then God will reveal to you those areas, those aspects of your married life where He wants to see changes. And through those changes, He changes you for the better. Yeah? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, don't read for ten minutes. It's too long. Five minutes at most. It has to be a paragraph, a page. No more. Because you want to read and... You, you need to read a little bit so you can keep it in your mind and think about it. Right? So for instance, let's say you read St. Luke, the Gospel of St. Luke, the Annunciation of um, uh, St. Gabriel to Our Lady. You just read the Annunciation. Not even her answer, the Annunciation. And you stop. And then you transport yourself in your mind into the house of Nazareth. You're in the house. When it happens, Gabriel appears, here's Our Lady. And you start asking very basic, simple questions. If you're asking lofty theological questions, you're on the wrong track. I'll tell you right now. The questions are very basic, very simple. What is she wearing? Why is she wearing what she's wearing? Where is Gabriel? Is he above her? Or is he below her? Is he standing? Is he kneeling? Or is she kneeling? Or she... Okay? And you're asking the question, you're not trying to force the answer. Just putting the question out there. Let the Holy Spirit guide you through them. And then suddenly, you might branch off on a whole thing about dress and dress code. And now you're thinking about yourself. And that's great, because the Holy Spirit may have wanted you to look at this. Or it could be, wow, did this happen when Mary was washing the dishes? That Gabriel appeared to her? Or did it happen when she was in prayer? That the angel came and spoke to her? Will the angel come and speak to me when I'm not in prayer the same way? What does it mean for an angel to speak? You see, you can go and ask where the Holy Spirit will guide you. Yeah? Not necessarily. No. No, 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 no. Do not assume this is some sort of a self-healing process where you're just letting these things that bother you come up. No. You're guided by the Holy Spirit. Remember, when you do that, yourself are going to be rebelling against this effort. So it's not a pleasant thing to do for us. That's why usually what would happen is that you tend to actually experience boredom and not deal with your situation. Because of the setting that you're in. Right? This is not this is not counseling. This is not psychology. It's not going to help you resolve an issue let's say if you have one it doesn't do any of this. Its purpose is to shed light. Sometimes it will shed light on the areas that you know about. Sometimes it will shed light in a completely different way. Don't don't expect it to be exactly what you think. It won't. Yeah? Okay. Questions? Well, you can't. Well, obviously you can't. Well, you can't. But that's why you're praying to the Holy Spirit. This is what God promised us. Read the letter of St. Peter. This is the wrestling part. This is where God comes to you. The Holy Spirit will come to you in prayer. And then through the agency of your God and angel, will shed light in those areas of your life that you need work. But you know what? Initially, we are exactly, in our minds, we're exactly like toddlers. How many of you have dealt with toddlers? Let's say seven or eight. Yeah? How many of you have tried this game with toddlers? Fish game. You've tried fish game? No? Fish game, you know, fish, don't talk, right? So fish game is sit down and don't speak. Okay? Toddlers. Try it, if you have toddlers. Try this game where you want the toddlers to sit sit in the same spot and not talk for three minutes and see what happens. See what happens after the three minutes if they are successful. It's like launching a rocket. That's how we are when we start. Our nature rebels against this treatment. And so God has to sort of put us through it initially, never mind shedding light, and never mind giving us an answer, just learn to sit still. And that will take, depending on our personality, anywhere from six months to a year, if you did it daily. Just so that you you get to the point where you can sit for a whole hour, and at the end of the hour, you're not perturbed, you're not perplexed, you're not upset. It takes a year, sometimes more, just to do that. Then, now that we are in a disposition to truly listen, God begins to reveal Himself to us. And then it gets to the point where sitting through an hour is really no big deal. You, know, you, can, you can sit for three. So that's what He's going to do. Would you take any man seriously if, you, let's say, your husband came to you when he met you? said, said, um, I want to marry you, but I can't spend more than five minutes with you every week. Sorry, that's all I can give you, five. Take it or leave it. Would you have been a happy woman had he said that to you? That's how we treat God. Lord, i got 15 minutes today. You're in my agenda. 15 minutes, take it or leave it. And in 15 minutes, I want you to come to me, have union and love with me, tell me everything you need, need to do, sh- show me everything, and then I'm ready to go. Thank you. That's how we treat God. So that alone will start to show us, whoa, mm, I'm not right with God. I got a way to go before I can at least correct myself. Right? Yeah. So there are, there are many treasures hidden in that time of prayer if one is willing to persevere. Yes. No, no, it's not the same thing, Fadi. We can carry conversation with God the, the whole day. The problem with these conversations is they're driven by us. That's the fundamental difference. My point to you is that you're always in control. In all these conversations, we are in control. They're very comfortable. The whole port of the hour is you're giving up control. You're told to sit, and you're sitting, and nothing is happening. Actually, it's really boring. But you're just trying to persevere in sitting... When there is no conversation, you're not trying to have a conversation. Actually, you shouldn't. If you tried, it's going contrary to the treatment that, that is required. That's what I'm saying. You don't try any of this. It's very counterintuitive. It isn't about building a relationship. You don't do anything active. That's the hard part. We are so driven by active things, all of us. We do things. You know? I'm about results, productivity. Let's get going. In this case, it's the exact opposite. Sit and do nothing. For an hour. It just, our mind goes crazy. Because there's nothing to do. For an hour. Try that for a change. See what happens. Because when you don't take the initiative, you're showing God, first of all, what? Complete faith. You're not taking the initiative. You're showing God what? Hope. Talk about hope. You don't know what's gonna happen. You don't know what to expect. You don't you know nothing. And you're showing God what? Love. I'm waiting for you. Now let's keep on going. You're actually being just with God. At least you're exercising justice. Because you're giving God not even what is due, but at least a piece of what is due. Time. And you're saying to God, it's your time, do whatever you want with it. I'm not going to control it. That's why I'm saying it's not a prayer or petition. It isn't a prayer where I have something in my heart that I want to share with God. It's a prayer or where I'm giving everything to God, I'm just waiting. Right? Justice. Talk about fortitude. You have to sit through the hour. Trust me. And oh, by the way, when you sit through the hour, that's why I want you to put the timer, but it shouldn't be in front of you. The timer should not be in front of you. It should be in another room. Because you know what you're going to do after the first 13 minutes and 12 seconds? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's going to be torture. That's why you want a timer outside of your room. Because if you did that, it's going to ruin everything. You're going to get discouraged right away. And resist the urge to get up and go check the timer. Resist it. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard on us who are so actively minded. But if you did it, fortitude, justice. Talk about temperance. You're tempering your passions. There is nothing. You're not talking. You're not being fed. You're not drinking anything. You can't see anything. You can't hear anything. You can't smell anything. There's nothing. So if you can during this hour, keep your eyes closed. At all times. So all you're doing is precisely... Showing God that you're serious about the relationship with Him. That's why it's a much more it's a richer form of prayer, it's a much more powerful form of prayer than the prayer petition. Yes. Ah, go to sleep. That's another good one. Talk about going to sleep. Of course you'll go to sleep. Of course you're gonna do the Oh yeah. Of course you're gonna do that. Your body is rebelling. And it takes time to purify it to where you can do this without going to sleep. Your body is going to rebel whichever way it can. And if it means putting you to sleep, it will go to sleep. It doesn't want to do this. It does not. And that's the power of it. You recognize how little we can do. You recognize your weakness. And, and what does that mean? You're getting to know who you are. Really. You see, because we're all of us, we're standing tall on mountains, and we can control the whole world. goes without saying, Right? When you do that, oh boy. Yeah, oh yeah, you'll fall asleep again and again and again and again and again. The point is to persevere. Even if you fall asleep, persevere. Keep at it. Let God take care of the rest. Yes. Um, for single people, what happens is that they need to have someone who is in is some sort of relationship of authority towards them. So if they have parents, for instance, or if they have a spiritual director, like a priest, or if they live in a religious order, they must have someone whom they can go to and can essentially get directions from it's really important a stranger i mean it should be someone they know and they trust right it can't be just anybody yeah it should be somebody who's catholic who knows the faith who's spiritual trustworthy to be able to provide this kind of direction otherwise it's it's hard yeah it is hard Yes, Very good point. My, my, what I was trying to uh, assert... I, I said it in two parts. I said the situation by itself will not help you become a saint. Even poverty on its, no, on its own will not help you become a saint. But then I said if you have two persons who are both um, inclined to God, one is poor and one is rich, the poor will make greater headways than the rich. Because he, he has far fewer occasions of temptations than the rich. Right? But I didn't want someone to think, oh well, all you have to do is be in a situation where you're poor and then everything No, it's not. It can lead you the exact opposite way. Okay? Any other question? God bless you.